Hello and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is the podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week we are taking a trip back to the mid-1960s. It's been a, been a while since we've done like one of our decade look back episodes. So It feels so. like it's been a really long time. Um, and a really long time for the 60s. Well, it's funny. Yeah. I was listening. I started listening to our older episodes recently because I feel like there's enough distance that now I, I don't remember what I said. So it's like fresh <laughs> or what you said or what even our, who our guests are for certain episodes. But I was listening to our movie openings one, which is like episode 20 something. And in it, I say as a hypothetical one, we're, I'm talking about different episode types we do. And I say something like it's not like when we do, I don't know, mid 60s. I was like, oh, hey. And that was like this morning. <laughs> I was funny. listening to that. So and now here we are. Um, yeah. Which. Uh, I will say not to get too, I don't know, confrontational, but looking at your picks, you're stretching mid 60s. Yeah. Well, I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got a lot of 1960s. Actually. No, two of them are 1963. Yeah. I get well, it. Well, <laughs> Harakiri. Well, maybe I shouldn't spoil that movie actually being one of your picks. But <laughs> that fine. film, that film, that's 1962. Is it? It's 62. I thought it was 63. Well, shoot. It's 62. I apologize. <laughs> I mean, if we don't follow our own arbitrary rules, what can we do? What, what can well, we believe in? That's just a genuine mistake. Well, honestly, like it, I. I was I'm mostly calling you out in jest. If I thought it was a serious issue, I would have messaged you before we recorded. Um well 63 I mean, must have been like the North America release or something, eh? Yeah. I'm sure I've saw it 63 associated with it. So well we can check IMDB because they'll list where it was released by like country as well, or when it was released by country. So we can determine that at a later date. But uh I mean in all seriousness, like the the topics there are usually just a way to like organize discussion anyway. So like, mm-hmm. you know, it, it isn't it's really a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> it was not one of the years I looked at when reviewing picks. I'll just say it, but it's fair. <laughs> it's okay. all good. Um, But it was, it was fun to come back to this after a couple of more specific categories where we can kind of just do what we, whatever we want. And I think potentially, against our types if you will i chose three films that are all in some way like escapist movies and you chose two comedies and then one of the darkest and most cynical films of its era (laughs) yep (laughs) (laughs) and that's that's interesting i think that might be a little bit uh reverse of how we often do this that's true so um, that'll be good and yeah. I apologize because I think I'm getting sick. So I, if I sound croaky, that is the reason. I'm sorry to hear that. I'm kind of crappy all day. So yeah. happy Valentine's Day to Ian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're recording on Valentine's, by the way, yes. everybody, even though this will come out later. This is how uh, how romantic we <laughs> so are. We're, we're, choosing the time. <laughs> we're choosing to spend Valentine's Day with each other talking about movies <laughs> instead of with our significant others. Oh, dear. That's fine. We're okay. I think. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> if we're recording next week from a, a hotel room, you'll know things did not go well. 
Well, we can uh, start off with a more romantic pick if you want. We can... Yeah. The movie has got some romantic leanings. Um, so I'm going to start with 1963, which I think still fits as mid. And... <laughs> It was I not part the of the years I was considering, I'll just say, fine. but, you know, it's fine, I guess. It's the outlier year, right? Because early would be 60, 61, 62. Yeah. Mid 64, 65, 66. 63 has got to go somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. 63 is like... one way or the other. 63, I, I will accept 63 as counting for the yeah. mid the threes in the decade are always the weird ones. They're the weird ones. Okay. <laughs> now that that's out of the way. <laughs> it's such a dumb conversation, but I have such strong so arbitrary. beliefs about it. <laughs> oh, so. boy. All right. So Charade, 1963. If you don't know Charade, it's, it's kind of like a spy thriller, but also quite comedic at the same time. And uh i don't know it's a good balance of like you know serious thriller with lighthearted romantic comedy um starring audrey hepburn and Cary grant the moment i'm going to talk about is a line from the first time these characters meet which is in a ski chalet on a ski hill so you open the movie in a ski hill you've you've won me over like i love skiing and i love the whole skiing aesthetic so uh yeah great choice uh so audrey hepburn is playing regina and um carrie grant is playing uh mr joshua peter joshua and they meet they meet each other they kind of run into each other and they have this little back and forth and basically they're flirting but you know they're saying things like oh well uh, do i know you or have i met you before and Regina's line here is I kind of want to highlight. So she basically says, you know, I know so many people that, you know, unless one of them dies, I can't possibly meet anybody else. I like it just as a, I think we talked earlier also with a Cary Grant with his girl Friday about, you know, setting the tone of comedy, what the comedy is going to be like. I think this line does that. And actually this whole back and forth scene kind of does that. It's, it's definite flirting um, between the two characters but in kind of like a sharp and, um, you know, kind of back and forth way. But also, it's kind of a neat little foreshadowing, right, for the plot coming up. Because what we're eventually going to find out is that somebody she knows will die. And that is, in fact, her husband, <laughs> which completely paves the way for Mr. Joshua to come on in. Um, but... <laughs> So it works It works on a number of levels. Like, it's a good line. It works on uh, a number of levels. One that relates to the plot, one that just relates to the comedy, and another that's actually just building this relationship. Because these two characters go on quite a journey as the movie goes on. Um, their relationships change a number of different times once they find out more things about each other, back and forth. They think they know something and then they find out something else. But that repartee is always there. And when it's delivered by Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, it's gold. And it's something that just makes Charade a, just a great watch. Yeah. And I like uh, the Cary Grant's response to 
this line about unless someone one of them dies is uh well if anyone ends up on the terminal list let me know yeah. uh, <laughs> which is a good retort to that and keeps the banter flowing you know i was thinking about this too because charade is one of those films and specifically is the film that gets described often as the best alfred hitchcock movie that alfred hitchcock never made mm-hmm. uh, and i've said by, that before as well yeah instructed by stanley donnan who is not a filmmaker who would typically be thought of as hitchcockian because he's Mm-hmm. Not that he only did musicals, but he's most famous for musicals and movies with a light touch and sort of this has a light touch too, but it is a suspense film in some ways. Um, and I think this is a detail that kind of distinguishes it from Hitchcock, though, because not that Hitchcock's Dude. films don't have banter and they do and they especially will have banter between like fraught lovers. Yeah, but there's something about this that somehow even though it's a line about like death, which would be Hitchcock adjacent the way it's delivered and the just immediate charm between the two. There's something about it. That's just cuter than you would see in an Alfred Hitchcock movie. I agree. Um, that's, that's the conclusion I came to this time around too. Cause I was like, you know, this is actually quite distinctive from Hitchcock. Hitch- Hitchcock wouldn't have made it this way. And I think you're touching on it, right? Like cuter is a good way to say it, or just a little bit more, more bubbly, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, Hitch, Hitch's ideas of relationships were a lot more perverse. <laughs> <laughs> Even in lighter stuff like the Thirty Nine Steps, there's such a there's legitimate vitriol behind a lot of the early banter between those characters, um, which you don't get here. Like even in this early scene, it's already like very charming and very like you're already wanting them to be together. Yeah. Um, which is something else I was thinking of, especially rewatching this clip, was thinking, is this the best Audrey Hepburn romance? And I ultimately didn't conclude it. I think Roman Holiday is probably the stronger love story. But yeah, it's close. I, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're both up there for me. I, as a romance, I would go with Roman Holiday. Um, but there's so much else to this movie, right? That. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is I don't know I love them both why are you doing this to me <laughs> they're both great <laughs> well I kind of didn't Roman Holiday kind of finally sparked last minute because for a while I was like it's charade because I was thinking like I mean Breakfast at Tiffany's she's with someone who's more age appropriate but that guy's boring he's quite boring yeah uh funny face is like wonderful in terms of its musical numbers but Fred Astaire looks really old and Cary Grant also looks old too, but somehow he doesn't feel as he doesn't feel that right. far He's... beyond her. True. Even though he age wise absolutely is. <laughs> uh Sabrina, there's another age distance between the characters, but I also just I like that movie a lot. But ultimately, Humphrey Bogart and Audrey Hepburn, while they work in that movie, they're not necessarily like a pairing for the ages, the way that some about Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn just feels right. It does. Um, I agree. They've got similar like, yeah, their comedy just jives with each other. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too watching this and it's 20 years after His Girl Friday and it's comforting to know Grant could still do this kind of it's not as fast as His Girl Friday, but nothing is as fast as His Girl Friday. Machine guns don't fire as fast as (laughs) His Girl Friday. And I think I've come to a conclusion, especially which I think has been solidified by this movie that Cary Grant is my favorite actor. Yeah. I, he's he's just 
so charming in almost everything that he's in. Mm-hmm. And he's not he's he's not very dramatic. Like he doesn't really get, you know, those juicy roles, the mm-hmm. the Humphrey Bogart type roles. But his shtick works on me. I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, his probably most off the top of my head, the most like dramatically resonant performance I can think of from him is Notorious. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that one, there's a lightness to the surface of how he p- plays it, even though it's a lot of the sort of uh, more dramatic resonance and a lot of sort of the darkness of that is more onto the surface. But uh, yeah, I, that's an interesting choice, especially because he's an actor who he's great, but he's not in like the camp of actors. He's very much like the movie star yeah. style of actor. Um, he does not disappear into his roles or play a variety <laughs> of different roles. No, I don't know, but it. I just love watching him every time. Interesting. And um, I mean, Audrey Hepburn too. Like she's she's mm-hmm. a delight. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I was. This was the one that like I really wanted to rewatch this before we we jumped on this episode. Uh, I didn't. I didn't end up having the time, but. I've wanted to rewatch it for a while because I liked it a good deal when I saw it, but it did. I don't, I didn't love it. And I'm not sure if that was just my mood or I don't know. I don't know what I'm missing. What do you think? I think, think I'm it, I think it I, I, I hope that you like it better next time you watch it. Cause I do think it's one that ages well, mm. like with the repeat viewings uh, there is like, I'm pointing out this particular piece of dialogue, but this is not, you know, an exception. This is, there is clever bits of dialogue throughout the entire movie that you don't remember from the time you watched it before. Right. Um, Like it, and it's, it's just always on. The writing is always on. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I do have a bit of a personal connection to it too, because I, uh, like I remember seeing this movie when I was a kid on TV, but the only part I remember was like a showdown with Audrey Hepburn and um, I guess I shouldn't give it away. And someone one else, of the, <laughs> one of the big bad guys, he was a quite prominent actor in his own right. Um, and there's this little showdown with that in a scene that involves pillars. That's what I'll say. Mm. And that that scene stuck in my head so much. And I had no idea what the movie was, but I knew that I knew the actors who were in it. And for a while, it was like this hunt for what is that movie, right? Because I didn't have the internet at my disposal to just figure it out. And eventually, I I learned, oh, it's this. Oh, it's Charade. Okay, so then I... Nice. It was like an old memory of like an old... One of the first old movies that I was like, oh, this is really cool. How nice it was that the movie it ended up being, too, was like a classic. That it wasn't just like you watched it and you're like, oh... (laughs) I had all these romantic memories and this this sort of evocative image that stuck in my head for years and years and years. And it was for like this (laughs) Um, because that happens sometimes. It's nice when it's something genuinely special. Yeah. Yeah. And I also went with a different uh, moment, but I would have had to talk about around spoilers a little too much. Yeah. So I decided not to because I the the main plot of the movie is like trying to find out where her husband's money went, right? Um, and th- there's this whole intrigue thing about that. But the answer to where the money went is so good. Like it's just 
is an is a genuinely great reveal that I didn't want to. So if anybody has not seen this, it's seventy old. But if I've convinced any of you to go and check it out, which hopefully I have, uh, that reveal is great, and I don't want to ruin it for you. So. Well, it's funny you say that too, because it's been so long since I've seen this and my memories are so vague that I don't remember a lot of these details. So a lot of it will be fresh for me, um, which is nice. Yeah. So nice. Good pick. Um, it's good to know that no matter how many decades pass, Cary Grant is throwing around banter with the best of them. I also like in the scene when uh, the kid shoots him with his water pistol and he's like, oh, clever <laughs> chap. You nearly missed me. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's a film that, like, even if it didn't have the interesting sort of mystery plot line, really can just kind of coast on the strengths of the dialogue and chemistry between the leads. It's very much like the thin man of its day. Definitely. I would agree. Which makes sense that you're a fan of both. I wanted to ask, though, before we move on from this film, because I know it's in the public domain. um, Is there like a high quality home video release to this movie? Yeah, it's Criterion. Criterion There's a Blu-ray from Criterion? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought they had a DVD. I wasn't sure if they also had a Blu-ray. So that's good to know. Um, So, because... Yeah, so it might be on the channel if you want to... It might be. I don't know. I think it's on... I mean, if it's public domain, I don't see why it wouldn't be. It doesn't cost anything to... Anyway, and you've got the nice... They've got the nice transfer. Might as well. You bet. All right. Uh, shall we right. move on to a very different genre? Let's do it. So continuing with my uh, rekindled love for Westerns and talking about the good, the bad and the ugly this week, decided to go all the way back two years to the beginning of the trilogy with a fistful of dollars. And the moment I've chosen isn't quite like a small moment per se. It's kind of the bulk of the opening scene. But it's a small detail of it that I think is important and I think is also often misunderstood to an extent, which is simply that Joe, the man with no name, he rides into town on a mule. And this is often cited as being emblematic of how atypical Eastwood's man with no name is as a Western hero. In Eastwood's own words, usually in a Western The character would come into town, see the woman being abused, and he'd ride in gallantly on his horse and fight the bad guy and save the day. And in this film, the hero instead comes in riding on this mule, sees this, you know, family that's been separated and the woman's kidnapped and the son's in agony and they mock him by shooting their guns. And he just walks along and he hears about all these horrors in the town. And he's like, I'm going to use this to enrich myself by playing these two gangs against each other. Doesn't care about virtue or saving people. Is entirely self-centered and is just going to save himself. And, you know, riding in on a mule is a perfect way to undercut the grandiose qualities and mythic heroic qualities of the Western. And that's true to an extent, but I also think it misses the fact that, well... The movie does still begin with the hero riding into town. And while it takes him a while, he does eventually save the woman, save her family, and beat all the bad guys. How good he makes the town afterwards is debatable when he seems to have killed most people who live there. But in a sense, he does effectively fulfill what he sets out, or what the typical Western hero would set out to do. And I think it's important because um, I think that gets to the core of what Leone's interest was in making these westerns 
And essentially that despite the reputation that surrounds them, he's not really deconstructing the myths of the West that much. In a lot of ways, he's actually re-mythologizing the characters. It's just that his myths take a lot of their appeal from a dirtier and scrappier quality. That the hero doesn't come in, you know, gallantly riding a horse, or he doesn't come as part of the cavalry. He's like this, you know, two-bit bandit who comes riding in on a donkey or a mule. Like, that's that's this, the scope of the romantic hero. And I also think it speaks to how generally his filmmaking ethos, like, it is scrappy, but he is aspiring to a similar grandeur. You know, A Fistful of Dollars is not just a B-Western. It's an unofficial remake of Yojimbo. And as far as remaking sources go, he's looking already pretty classy in terms of his cinematic reference points. By the time you get to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, he's very overtly referencing David Lean epics, The Bridge and the River Kwai, and Lawrence of Arabia. And then two years later with Once Upon a Time in the West, his masterpiece, his central reference points are The Searchers, and of all things, Gone with the Wind. Those are the films that he's evoking in both plot and especially in visuals. And it, it goes to show that, like, yes, these films were made on the cheap. You know, they were getting American actors who were either at spaghetti westerns generally past their prime or were no names who didn't have a prime yet. So they could get them cheap and still have an American face to sell. Um, they weren't shot in true cinemascope. They were shot in a cheaper brand of widescreen film to uh, cut costs on budget they would use you know reuse the same sets and costumes and pay for very little actors appear from film to film ostensibly in the same series playing different roles something that would be uh echoed later in like the mad max trilogy um you know there is a scrappy quality to them there is a uh, a dirty cheap quality to them but leone as a filmmaker he is aspiring to grandeur. He is aspiring to grandeur with the materials he has, and that instead of being a limitation where he wants to make these big, lavish westerns, but he can't afford to, he instead turns that into part of the charm. You know, the hero who comes in riding a donkey, and while that might seem like, oh, well, it's, well what a what a way to undercut the myth of the western, by the end he proves even just as mythic and even more awesome than those other heroes. And the fact that he comes in riding a donkey is actually cooler than if he came in riding a horse. <laughs> um, I think the best way to sum up the differences is to think about uh, Sergio Leone's friend slash rival, the other Sergio, the wrong Sergio, as he was dubbed by Burt Reynolds, Sergio Corbucci, who also makes a Western trilogy in the 60s called the Mud and Blood Trilogy that starts in 1966 with Django. And Django is also a loose, unofficial remake of Yojimbo, although much looser than Fistful of Dollars, which is like scene for scene. And it also opens with the hero coming into a town. But he doesn't ride a horse. He doesn't ride a mule. He comes barefoot, or not barefoot, but on feet through the mud, dragging a coffin behind him. And that, I think, that difference really emphasizes that for as much as, yeah, Leone's films are a little dirtier and a little bit nastier, they are still aspiring to a grandeur. And that does, I think, hold in the movies that he continues to make moving forward. So that's my moment, riding in on a mule and how even if it seems like it's deconstructing Western myths, it's actually doing something a little bit more complex. Right. He's just more rough around the edges. Mm -hmm. 
It's kind of like how when you first time you see Tuco in Good, Bad, the Ugly, he's like chomping down on a turkey leg as he's crashing through a window. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, this is not <laughs> <laughs> this is not what I'm used to. Um, and that seems another great example of of manipulating your expectations because there's like before you see him, there's like <laughs> the one guy and the other group, and it looks like they're about to have a showdown with each other, but then oh no, they're going in the bar together to get somebody else. And, and not only that, but you've got, oh, now we're talking about the other movie, but you, you've got like the doorway. And so you're expecting someone to come running out of the doorway, but instead he crashes through the window <laughs> that's right to the right of it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's all emblematic of the same idea of like, that's more of like a visual play in the geography, <clears throat> but it's like setting up certain expectations in the visuals and then taking them in a different path. Yeah. I agree with you with what you're saying, because I've never really saw these movies as even though they're removed from the classic Western, I've never really seen them as deconstructing the Western or, you know, going against the genres tropes necessarily. Like they've always in my mind, they've always stood out as, you know, just Westerns like Clint Mm -hmm. Eastwood is a Western star. And that's the way it is. I'll be honest, when I saw you uh, put this on, I was wondering if you were going to try to make, because you basically mentioned the mule is going to be what you're talking about. And I'm like, is he going to make some sort of religious allegory here? (laughs) (laughs) Like, is he going to compare this to Palm Sunday in some way where where Jesus rode in on the donkey? I Because I can't see it. (laughs) I I can't see where he would take that. (laughs) You say that, but I want to say in Christopher Frailing's, who's like a Leone scholar, in his commentary, he makes that exact point. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. boy. So, um, and there's a lot of, I think there's actually a <laughs> decent amount of religious elements to those films that some of it is lost on us because they're coming from an Italian context as well. And there's some cultural differences there, even if it's the same overall religion. I miss a lot of those because I'm not trained in, in the ways of Catholic school. So, I don't know that. Sure. <laughs> I just know uh, that I know other movies, so I can compare it to the other Westerns I know. Yeah, um, yeah no, I don't really. In, in some ways, I can see the argument for them not being quite revisionist, certainly. But certain elements that are deconstructed, the fact that the heroes are. They're amoral in a way that they're not they don't apologize for. Like you think about the Naked Spurs say, a decade before. I don't know if you've seen the Naked Spurs, Jimmy Stewart. He plays a bounty hunter, but it's the film is very much about moralizing debates about the ethics of hunting people as a profession. And the Leone films don't care about that. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, hunt people and take in bounties. That's fine. Like, there's no, they don't stop to have to debate that. And you can argue within the fabric of the film what the ethics are and how the film is framing it, but it's never overt in dialogue. Um, so there's a certain, but even that, a lot of that comes more, I think, just from being films that were made outside of the bounds of the Hollywood production code. Um, they didn't need to worry about those considerations. They did. They, they didn't have to make it clear that distinctions of good and evil and evil is defeated at the end, even though in some ways in all the films, evil is defeated in the end. You know, as I said, like, Oh, the man with no name doesn't care to save the woman and family uh, until he does. Yeah. And he even, he, he doesn't have a lot of lines, but he does say something to the effect of, you know, I knew a group like you before and there was no one there to help, which apparently the original script, there was much more dialogue and Eastwood was the one who said, like, you should keep this more mysterious. And it's just, you know, he only says like two or three things, 
one of the few actors. You didn't in, want to memorize all those lines. Maybe. <laughs> He's like, uh, this movie's going to suck anyway. I don't want to say a lot. Um, <laughs> Frailing in his book on Leone notes that uh, he becomes one of the few actors in history to ever lobby for less lines, not more. Um <laughs> Which is interesting, but it also speaks to Eastwood's strengths. Not that he's yeah, bad that at delivering seems, dialogue, but that seems Eastwood like. Yeah, he has a good sense of himself, which is probably why he's such an effective filmmaker. Um, yeah, I mean, elements of it are certainly playing with Western tropes, and you, I've even read fairly convincing arguments that in some ways Leone's films are parodies of the Western, or at least have elements of parody to them. Um, some of them more than others. I think for a few dollars more is probably the most parodic me and, and ducky sucker, which is a bit of a different story, but um, no, ultimately they do. Leone loves those myths. Yeah. Yeah. You um, can tell. <clears throat> I think another part of it is just like, okay, so if he drives in on a horse, who cares? And then it's just like anything else. Mm-hmm. But if he rides in on a mule, well, that's different. Like, so I'm sure that's going through Leone's mind, too. It's like, well, this is a little different. Mm-hmm. People might remember. It might stick out. Um, so there's got to be that aspect to it, too. Like, how can we. How can I make this a Western, but make it my own? Yeah, so. yeah, I think so. Um, I think that's absolutely correct. So. <clears throat> yeah. Sweet. I haven't seen this movie in a long time. I really should check it out. It rules. Again, yeah. Leone never made a bad movie. <laughs> I mean, he didn't make many of them, so I guess some people would argue because this is technically his second film. His first directorial effort is The Colossus of Rhodes, which is like a sword and sandals cheapo mm. epic. And like I'm not gonna defend it, really, but when I and I my memories of it are pretty loose. But when I saw it, I thought, for what this is, it's not bad. It's reasonably entertaining. It passes the time well enough. There's not a lot of like Leoneisms in it, but it's competent. Hmm. That's what we want is competency. Hey, I was expecting something <laughs> so much worse. I was like, yeah, this is okay. It's it's fine. So sweet. When was the last time you kind of do you when you watch these movies, do you just like pick one and watch it or do you watch all three of them? Uh, I usually end up watching them all. <laughs> um, I will say, though, I think the last time I saw this would have been in the context of I was TAing a course that was half the films were Sergio Leone's and we watched his entire filmography, except Colossus of Rhodes, which the professor <laughs> loaned me a DVD so I could watch that one on my own time. Um because I requested to. So <laughs> that was in a specific context of watching them all together and like having to, but uh, I like to, uh, sometimes I'll throw on probably just the good, the bad and the ugly. Or like when I introduced these to Brooke, we just watched good, the bad and the ugly. Cause I thought, well, there's no sense beating around the bush. Show her the big one. And if she likes that, we'll, we'll go back and watch the others. Yeah. And she did. So we will eventually go back and watch the others. Nice. But... Sweet. Awesome. A good pick. <clears throat> All righty. Okay. Did I move on? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So we're going to go to, I think, 64 is when this one came out. Um, so a little more close to the middle. Dan. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about A Shot in the Dark, which is 
kind of a which is a sequel to the Pink Panther, but I mean it's also they're pretty self-contained movies anyway, so you don't necessarily need to consider it a sequel if you don't want to. Um Shot in the Dark, starring Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau, who of course has become synonymous with, you know, clumsy guy, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Uh, so what I want to talk about with a shot in the dark is a particular gag and it's a running gag that I think is just a brilliant example of a running gag and it's the the paddy wagon gag. So Clouseau, he's on this case and he's trying to, you know, find out who the killer is and all that jazz. Uh, but he he likes to do that with like these ridiculous disguises. And so one ridiculous disguise is he's a a balloon salesman. And so he's following one of the suspects, pretending that he's a balloon salesman. And then the cop catches him. And he's like, do you have a permit for that? And then all you see is a cut to a paddy wagon driving up the street, turning. And then you just see the balloons hanging out the back. Okay. So he was taken in by the cop. But then they do it again later. Um, where he's pretending to be a street painter. And again... The cop comes up and then you see the exact same shot of the paddy wagon and then you turn around and then you, you see him poking his head out and he's still on his in his painter outfit. Uh, and then it happens one more time when he's pretending to be a hunter. It's. It's one of those things where, you know, the first time it's like, oh, OK, that's kind of funny. He got caught. His disguise didn't work and he actually got busted for it. But then as the joke keeps happening, it gets funnier every time. Um, because now it's kind of got this familiarity to it. And I was going to tie this into the, uh, the idea of, you know, comedy in threes, but actually this doesn't work because it actually has, there's four different scenes. So I was like, <laughs> ah, it doesn't work. Uh, but what it does do is it builds up to the last one, which is a little bit different, right? So all the other ones, it repeats this pattern. And now, and the fourth time it still follows the pattern, but it's got a bit of a twist. Like it's, it's the funniest one probably because there's this hilarious scene where Clouseau, um, he's, he's trying to, he's following the suspect who's like the woman that's being accused of the murder, but I, he's falling in love with her. So he's trying to actually prove that she's innocent, <laughs> but they end up at a nudist colony together, which in itself is a hilarious scene. But of course, then they end up, um, getting caught and they're both naked and so we see so she is actually in the paddy wagon as well at this point and as you turn around you see a bunch of cops hanging off the back like just staring inside like a bunch of creeps and uh and so that's like the the climactic version of this running gag um and it made me realize you don't see running gags in movies very often like it's Certainly not it's anymore. Kind of, we don't see comedies yeah. anymore. You're right. It's it's kind of being a lost art. And I think as long as it's done well and it's not beaten into the ground, and I think I I think it's like just a great comedy trope to use. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is a stellar example of it. It's very funny. Well, in this movie also it helps that there's there's enough distance between each utterance of this joke that you kind of put it at the back of your mind. So it's fresh again when it comes mm -hmm. back. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, and I think that goes a long way. I think I like that you point out, it's not actually a rule of threes, but they do change things up on the fourth. So yeah, which maybe is, is part of that discipline is like, well, if we're going to do it a fourth time, we need to, 
Um, but I also think it speaks to something about like, you know, and the comedy rule of threes thing. I've heard that as well, but it's like, where does that really come from? <laughs> you True. know, like, it just feels like it's kind of like, I, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a student of comedy um, at all, but it would seem to me the overall point of that is this idea of like repeating and escalating something is funny. And three yeah. is just a good three is kind of our standard because beginning, middle, end is our way of thinking about like three act stories and things like that. Uh, trilogies as being the the be all and end all. Um, but it's not in and of itself a magic number. So I think it can be four or even more than that, if that works. And I also think it gets to something important about this movie in general, because you mentioned it's a sequel to the Pink Panther. What are your thoughts on the original Pink Panther? If I, may uh, I don't. I think it's way less funny. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's boring. Way... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's um, like that. There's that ch- chase scene that I really like mm-hmm. that, that almost like a Benny Hill ish kind of car chase scene. I think it's hilarious, but it's hilarious in a way that you can completely watch it out of context. And it's hilarious. It doesn't, yeah. it's not tied into the movie very much. And it's not emblematic of what a lot of the rest of the movie is, which is in some ways almost more about the David Niven character and the mysteries played a bit more just straight. And it's like the mystery elements are fine, but they're not like exceptional Um, to the point that if you because I think like most people, you just know the name and you and usually it's the case that the first one is the classic. You go and you watch that first and it's like, "Hmm, that's kind of not great. Yeah. but this sequel is like rip roaringly hilarious. It is great fun. Yeah. I don't is... think a scene goes by without something hilarious happening. No, it, it's a it's a full bore comedy. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this I think the paddy wagon running joke is a good example of the filmmakers kind of almost realizing what they had on their hands, because there's certainly in the first film glimmers of Sellers's brilliance in this part and how funny this can be being like, you know, what if we oriented an entire movie around his boobery? <laughs> Crazy <laughs> concept. Yeah. Yeah. Even even just like the ridiculous, silly gags, like like him opening up the, getting out of the taxi and then immediately stepping into the pool because <laughs> like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the car parked right beside the fountain. Like it's so simple, but it's so good. Yeah, and it also because it's more fully integrated, like. Because the first one will have glimmers of that, but it almost, even when Sellers is on, it doesn't land quite as hard. And I think part of it is because it almost throws you because there's so many stretches of just semi-tedious plot work that isn't that interesting. That even when Sellers comes on and starts injecting some comedy, it's almost like you don't know how to process it because the rest of the movie isn't really like that. But right. this film is so fully a comedy with, and there is a mystery plot and I think stripped to its stuff. It works pretty well and probably I'm going off memory, so it's a little bit loose. But I want to say the mystery elements here are actually more interesting than the first movie. Yeah, um, even though I think it so, is, too. Yeah. So, like, theoretically, they could have also done this one in a more like balanced style. But it was to their credit that they just went full speed ahead of just making it a full on like laugh a minute type comedy. If it wasn't. If this movie didn't work, would Pink Panther even be remembered? Is this the reason that the Pink Panther franchise even is a something that is cherished? 
I think mostly. I mean, the animated segments, like the opening and the music, is probably iconic enough that and like good enough that I think that could have lasted to some extent. But certainly as Possibly. like a as a beloved comedy, I think it's because of this movie. Yeah, I agree. Have you seen any of the sequels? Not not past this. No, neither have I. I want to say at least one of them is written by uh, a fellow known for mostly funny stuff by the name of William Peter Blatty. Um, mm, before writing the novel for The Exorcist, he was writing Pink Panther sequels. Oh. <laughs> and he just thought, I, I got some demons to put out on the page. I don't know what that says about what the experience of writing those was like. <laughs> but anyway, that's yeah. the one thing I know about this. And that, like. I think one of them came out after Sellers was dead and they had shot a little bit of it. So they completed it with like a stand in or like a lookalike or something, oh, which yeah. is pretty gross. Although I would, I'm admittedly, I'm almost more curious to see that of the later sequels because it's like, what does that even look like? Because it's one thing to do that with like Ed Wood doing it on Plan 9 with Bella Lugosi, where it's like a monster who's in the shadows. Right. How do you do it for the lead of a comedy? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that would be tough. Hmm. But 1964, big year for Peter Sellers. Yeah, uh, obviously, uh, well, Pink Panther original is also in 64, I believe. Was it? Or maybe not. Actually, this year wrong? No, 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 no. That might be 63, but it, there, it was like within a couple months that uh, Shot in the Dark came out. So it might have been tail end of 63. And then the big one is Doctor Strangelove. Right. Which is, yeah, he yeah. gets an Oscar nomination for uh, and probably should have won. I'd have to look again at the probably should have won. Yeah, it's crazy how like how the they just knock sequels out back then. Right. Like mm -hmm. um, even even the. You know, the man with no name trilogy. Those pretty much year after year after yep. year, mm -hmm. like the James Bond movies of this time, Dr. No was 62, then. Russia with love and then like they're yeah they came I wonder out if year after year basically and I've always wondered if part of that especially with the bonds is a factor of um a less grueling marketing cycle um yeah. and I don't know yeah, but it just seems true. like that's such a bigger part of films now and also and this only gets worse with time but post-production seems like it's really expanded like in the 60s, what you've shot is what you've got. Maybe you, you know, how you edit it together matters. And obviously you can reshoot stuff or film new scenes, make changes that way. But like there's no post-production digital effects, obviously. There's no color correction, really. Like there's ways you can alter the footage, but it isn't like just a standards part of the process like it is now. Um, so I'm guessing that also... Well, and I yeah, actually, now that I think about it, I wonder, too, because when you're shooting on film, it costs more to shoot more film. So there's an impetus that filmmakers not shoot as much. So on mm. some level, is there just less raw material to work with than when you're shooting digitally? Yeah, that's very possible. Yeah, I'm just speculating. I don't know for sure, but these seem like they'd all be factors. But I think the I definitely think the marketing cycle is probably a big part of it. Yeah. So, yeah, it just wasn't as big a thing. Um, yeah, so the running gag, bring it back, people. Yes. Yeah. Arrested yeah. Development was brilliant at this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
uh, even though it seems like a lot of the, for some reason, it feels like the legacy of that show is largely tarnished by that one bad Netflix season. Like people really fixate yeah. on that. Yeah, they shouldn't have done that. So I haven't seen the newer. I don't think I finished the, the run of the original show. I really enjoyed it, though. It's um, very funny. And you know what? If if Hollywood, if you're listening, if the running gag is too much, please just bring back comedies. Yeah, just in general. I don't just want make us laugh again. I don't want the biggest comedy of the year to be like Thor Love and Thunder. For so many reasons, I don't want that. Um, yeah. Well, um, I do have a comedy to talk about, but I will actually save that for later. So instead, I'll segue on the bounds of James Bond. I right. did try to avoid talking James Bond because, like, I feel like it's such a cliche with me on the show. <laughs> but sometimes you can't you can't run from your destiny. So I want to talk about Thunderball. Um, a very brief scene a very brief part of a bigger scene which is when bond has been captured by the villainess and her goons and he escapes and you have this really intense chase scene through the streets of nasso but the the bit i really want to focus on is when bond first escapes out of their car and he goes on the run one of the goons sort of flies out of the car and fires his pistol and you cut to uh bond getting hit in the leg and then when the villains sort of regroup and they're trying to find him they notice the blood splatter on the ground and that's how they follow him and, and track him down and there's a couple things i like about this one blood from gunshots is certainly a rarity for the series but it was also just a rarity for like movies at this time um a lot of it is just not to say it was unprecedented but there's a lot of you know gun goes pow and a character reacts but there's no blood maybe you get like a, an explosion of um sort of like debris or clothes or smoke but you're not getting like verhoven level squibs or blood gushing <laughs> out of wounds and you're and it's pretty restrained here if you go back to the scene like it's mostly just like a little pitter patter of blood on the ground but it adds such a desperate sense of physicality to the chase scene and makes his wound feel way more real than it would otherwise but I also like this in the context of the Bond series at this point and where it was going. Because the movies start, 62 with Dr. No, pretty small scale. That film is a very straightforward detective story. British agent goes to Jamaica to investigate a thing. And that's it. Like the whole movie set there. From Rush With Love has a bit more globetrotting, more locations, more sets, more detailed and extravagant plot and bigger action scenes. But there is a simple spy movie quality to a lot of it. A lot of just sort of snooping and gathering information. And it's very simple, even if it's getting bigger. By the time you get to Goldfinger, things are escalating to a much higher degree. By the time you have a laser that's threatening to slice James Bond in half, it's hard to say that these are little movies <laughs> anymore. Uh, and obviously the climax of that one is like this huge bombastic event with um, both the, the army fighting and then also Bond fighting in a room full of gold uh, bricks against a superpowered henchman so they get bigger and bigger and then thunderball for its time is the biggest bond yet it grosses the most money and i think adjusted for inflation is still the highest grosser of the series i believe it had the highest budget mm. yet it's got a more of an emphasis an increasing emphasis on gadgets the opening set piece which has the jetpack which looks ridiculous but does actually function and work which is <laughs> baffling and you have this massive undersea battle in a lot of ways the film is like okay goldfinger was big we need to be even 
bigger. But it's not directed by Guy Hamilton, who was sort of more interested in the camp and comical elements of the series and the gags. It's directed again by the first Bond director, Terrence Young, the guy who really defines the series in those early movies. And so even though it's getting bigger and bigger, he keeps one foot still firmly planted. I don't want to say in the real, because there's still heightened spy movie adventures, but in a more tangible threat. So even though it's this big movie, um, you have this scene where it is a very simple, like Bond just, and, and this scene is big. You've got tons of extras. You've got like a, and a lot of that's just taking advantage of the real uh, parade going on in the city and shooting around it and, you know, uh, but it is like tons of extras, lots of moving parts, um, some degree of special effects. What with the explosion that Bond uses to escape, and then the 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 gunshot. Um, but it is ultimately rooted on this really simple thing of like Bond's leg is injured, and that makes him vulnerable. And I really love the way Young, even in the midst of the scope and size and the bombast of this movie, he keeps you located in a very tangible, relatable sense of danger. So that's my pick. Nice pick. It's also, it's, it's kind of like a, the other th- aspect to it is that Bond can't necessarily sneak away like he normally would be able to, right? His, um, his spy abilities have been affected as well because mm-hmm. he can't stop himself from bleeding and he, and therefore he can't stop the blood trail and he can't stop them from following him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which shows his vulnerability in that moment as well. Yeah, and it really it really breaks the unflappable coolness of 007. Um right. which is something this movie does a lot in in various ways. I mean, the fact too that like you know, in the last movie Bond in a scene that's aged very poorly uses his sexuality to essentially convert the villain to his side. Um and in this film kind of the opposite happens bond doesn't become evil but the the villain uh volpe knows that he's like this crass horn dog uses that to her advantage and sleeps with him basically to stall for time and distract him and then you know is not converted to the side of of good by bond's just raw sexual power (laughs) and i like that too like he kind of gets put in his place by her ultimately he wins out of course because He's the main character of the series and they are fantasies oriented around him. But um, there's a humbling there. And then the more dramatic moment of that is when he's telling Domino about what happened to her brother and his hand trembles and he hides his face with the sunglasses. It's there's these little little touches that uh, that Young was really keen on that make the character less of the Superman that he is in Goldfinger. Yeah, that's a good point. Is he did Young direct any others after this, or is this nope. his last one? This was his last uh, Bond yeah. film, which makes sense when you go to um, what's the next one? Why can't I think of it? You, you only, only live, live twice. twice. Yeah, you only live twice, which is like, yeah, just all out bombastic, but full on <clears throat> cartoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the that's I... the 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 ebb and flow of the Bond series. I think I called it in one of my video essays. Um, like the Moonraker paradox, where it's yeah. like they they build and build and build, but then they gotta uh take Blow it back it down to earth. Point. And yeah. then there was there was another term I had I can't remember what it was, but also basically referred to like 
as much as you need to scale back on the dumb shit, sometimes people also like the dumb shit. So you can't <laughs> you can't go too far there. I can't remember what the right. other term I had for it was. I was so proud of them back in the day. <laughs> uh, I think. But I, I do think that this kind of sensibility of, you, you know, the more spy, you know, scale down spy aspect to it is what I like about the Bond movies. Mm-hmm. Right, because when I'm looking at which ones I like, because I like Thunderball quite a bit, actually, and I mean, yeah, it does have the big underwater battle scene, but I don't know, that's kind of fun. Um, but it does feel like Bond is a person, and um, way more than <laughs> you know the middle movies, for example, mm-hmm. where he's flipping cars over bridges and all that what have you that I never really bought into that aspect of bond, like the goofier aspect. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just cause I'm a prude. I don't know, but, <laughs> uh, but like Dr. No, I really like this one. I really like. And then of course, Casino Royale, which is uh, kind of its whole other thing, but mm-hmm. yeah, I tend to lean more to the, the grounded. I hesitate to use the word gritty, but certainly relative to, to you only live twice. Uh, yeah, <laughs> which I believe those were the terms. I think it was the Moonraker principle and the Yolt paradox, um, which, you know, uh, you can find those terms in your local dictionary of film history. But uh, yeah, I tend to lean towards the the more grounded. I like the sensational as well. Like I'm known as a modest defender of Moonraker around these parts. Um, <laughs> so I'm not against that. And I like the Pierce Brosnan movies for the most part. Even Die Another Day, I will defend to a modest extent, a very modest extent. But um, so I, I don't it's not that I don't appreciate that. Like, I love Goldfinger. I think Goldfinger's a hoot um, in part, though, because Goldfinger still keeps some semblance of of plausible threat. Like the, the laser is silly, but Connery plays it as if he's in like real duress. So there is still some element there, but obviously it's a bit different than, you know, just being shot in the leg and having your bleeding and being vulnerable. There's there's a reality to that that uh, is a bit more uh, tangible. Yeah, that's that's fair. I actually just threw in Gold uh, Goldfinger just before we started recording. I'm like, well, I got an hour before we start. Oh, nice! So I started watching Goldfinger. Nice, good film. <clears throat> I because uh, I didn't see pretty good. Yeah, I like sixties Bond. There's just kind of like a I don't know a certain quality to it, even just the way it looks, like the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. It feels very sixties, but in like a in like a cool way, like where you kind of feel like you're just you're back in the sixties with him. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. That's kind of how I feel when I see it. It helps that Connery more so than the Roger Moore ones, for example. Yeah, I'd agree, and it helps that Connery is like the prime era of him as like a suave leading man. Cause by the time you get to the seventies, he started like, you'd see it in diamonds are forever. He's not aging super gracefully. Um, he looks kind of just creepy and <laughs> unpleasant, but, you know, and which is not really a knock on his appearance so much as the way he plays that character mixed with how he's aging just feels there's, it's not sexy like it is in the, in the sixties films. The time you get to the 80s, Connery... And then Roger Moore saw that and said, I'm going to do that. <laughs> the Moore th- films are crazy, too, because, like, uh, Man with the Golden Gun, and I do... F- I wonder if this was, like, a direct response to 70s action heroes getting darker and more hard-edged. He's, like, slapping women around and stuff, and it's, like, th- even beyond the obvious 
ways that's hard to watch. It is so incongruous with Roger Moore's screen presence that yeah. it's just like I my brain can't handle this. Yeah. So. Oh boy. Oh Roger Moore. I just can't. I don't know. I just can't get on board with his. Spy, you love me, man. That one's wonderful. Spy, you love me is good. For your eyes only. Yeah. You don't like fear eyes only. I don't only? even remember that one, honestly. <laughs> that's that's the that's the grounded Roger Moore one. Really? It starts somewhat goofy with the Blofeld scene where uh he kind of gets him on the helicopter, but then the story involves like drug smuggling and uh um there's like a very famous scene where like he's Bond scaling a mountain and like his his thing breaks and he just isn't like free fall minus just the one harness hanging onto him. It's good. It's the one where remember he, uh, a thing about it. I'll be. <laughs> it's got uh, an early appearance by Tyrion Lannister. Oh really? Yeah, he's like just like a henchman. Um, it's got a great ski scene. Well, there you go. You love skiing. I do love skiing. <laughs> uh, it's got a really awesome scene. I actually where, like, went the... skiing on Thursday. Oh, nice. There we go. So you should watch that. Too. It's got an awesome part where. The henchman guy who like killed Bond's uh, flame earlier is like in his car at like the edge of a cliff, and Bond comes over and just kicks it into the to him to his death, which is pretty dark for Roger. Um, <laughs> although, as we discussed on our Bond episode a million years ago, he actually has the highest kill count of any James Bond by a pretty wide margin. Yeah. So. Well, he does have the most movies as well. It's true. Not by that much more than Connery, though. Yeah. So he is just bloodlust and just crazy. He just <laughs> loves to kill people. So. Yeah. Oh, good pick. I like uh, I like Thunderball a lot. Me yeah, too. For for a lot Scri- of the reasons you said. Script's messy, but I think Terrence Young pulls it together pretty well. Right. And then they improved on it in the eighties with uh, Never Say Never Again. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Ooh. Oh, Never Say Never Again. What a picture. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> All right. Well, we can go to my last pick then. Yeah. Which. Um, Another zany comedy from Ian for tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is funny because my pick is like a comedic pick. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, you think of it as a comedic beat. Yep, I do. Interesting. So. Uh, we're going to be talking about Harakiri from, I think, from 1963, but apparently that's in debate. And I'll look it up while you explain your your moment. Good. Uh, what's the what's the director's name again? Masaki Kobayashi. Kobayashi, right? Kobayashi. So, uh, Harakiri is you know set in the 1600s Japan, like the samurai age. Um. And the story is basically, just to give you this, the basics here, it's a samurai who shows up at a wealthy household um, and he's asking permission to commit harakiri, basically to commit, you know, traditional Japanese suicide in their courtyard, which I guess they just needed a place to do it that would be honorable, I suppose. Um Again, there's a lot of cultural stuff that I don't know anything about with this movie, so I'm not going to pretend that I do. Um, but that's the basic idea of this plot. And then it kind of goes on from there. And 
Um, if you haven't seen it, it's, I will say that it requires patience, but it is worth it. Um, it's kind of like the plot is revealed slow or the story. I'm not going to say the plot. The story is revealed over time, pretty slowly, um, but in a way that just keeps pulling you in deeper and deeper and deeper. It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Uh, the moment I'm going to talk about is, yeah, I think it's the, because for the most part, I don't know if you agree with me, Dan, this is a pretty humorless movie. Yes, it's pretty <laughs> like, grim. Yeah. And it's and extremely it's, cynical and dark. Yes. And so this is kind of like the one moment I would say is a comedic moment. I mean, there's there's some banter with um, with the main character and his friend a little bit earlier in the movie, but that's just kind of like just to establish that they're friends kind of. Uh, but this one, they're talk- talking with his son-in-law and they're talking about, um, you know, kind of politics. They're talking about what's happening in the world. And then they're talking about how, uh, you know, how hard it is to get jobs, how hard it is to get employment. And he mentions, well, you know what? So maybe it's not that bad a thing to not have a boss, to not have somebody in charge of you, uh, to not be at someone's beck and call all the time. And immediately when he says, not be at someone's beck and call, his grandson starts crying and he like immediately goes, oh, and goes to get him, right? Which is, a, I, I don't know. I think that's, you don't think that's a funny beat? I think there's a humorous quality to it. There's certainly an irony to it. Yeah. Um, but I also think there's some subtext there in terms yes, of... Yes, there is, uh, which is why I'm bringing it up. Like, okay. that's not the only thing I'm saying about it. <laughs> uh, but it did make me wonder, and the fact that it is, like, the only comedic beat makes you wonder why. Like, what? why is it there? What is the director saying about that? Um, and when I was watching this movie, it really plays out as a movie about saying the rich versus the poor is simplistic, but that is what it's getting at, right? So the privilege of um, people who are well off versus those who aren't. And also, I think it, it looks very critically at the kind of, you know, rich and powerful lifestyle and their, their worldview about things. I think it's, this movie is a pretty big attack on that, on how they see the world. Um, and I think this scene is a contrast to that type of lifestyle, right? It's where the people who maybe aren't as well off or kind of living day to day, like the main character and his family, their priorities are each other. And I think that this, this shows that, okay, there's a piece of irony where he's saying he's not anyone's beck and call. And then he immediately is at the beck and call of his grandson, but that's okay because that's, you know, where our priorities should be is with the people that we love. And that's, it's showing that and it's showing that, um, that's why we are on his side and all the whole movie that's being contrasted with the other point of view where, uh, Everything should be for, you know, power and pomp and um, sending a message, right? No matter who that affects, whether that's no matter whose life is being taken, that doesn't matter to them. They're, 
what it says about their people and their house is what matters uh, and the consequences be damned. Um, there's also another moment where this is highlighted, where somebody, this guy comes to talk to him because they're not doing well, like they're not well off. And he's basically saying, have you given any thought, more thought to, you know, sending your daughter off for employment to this, to one of the high Lords. And he's like, well, you're basically saying I'm sending my daughter off to be a concubine. And of course he's not willing to do that. Um, But the fact that that was even an option, like a considerable option says a lot about where that society is at and what other people, where other people's priorities are really screwed up. Uh, And arguably what's needed to be done to, to get by for right the lower class the desperate right because they're and they're put in that situation to yeah they're to no fault of their own they're just mm-hmm. they just wind up maybe because i think the main thing is that the house that they were employed by just lost a battle right and so now they're all out of luck there's what are they supposed to do so mm-hmm. it's a well, very harsh look at at this divide in society yeah, and I think one of the ironies of the not being at anyone's beck and call and then immediately being beckoned by the child is that there's the literal sort of point about, you know, having to attend to the kids' needs. But on a, on a grander sense, it's also this neat notion of, like, part of that economic desperation, that's exasperated by having a kid because kids yeah. are, they cost. And a lot of the exploitation at the hands of bosses the hands of owners of capital is is necessitated because you don't it's it's not just the pressure or the need to provide for oneself but to provide for this family um and in a sense that you know having this child makes that harder for the characters and it adds to that responsibility and i also find it interesting because in this conversation before they're also talking about and i'm going to be careful to avoid spoilers because as you've laid out, it's it's a slow burn, but watching the story reveal itself is so rewarding, and I don't want to mm-hmm. take away from that, but I will just say that the context of the conversation has to do with someone else, what they've done in desperation to make money, and one of the characters describes that as being a very shameful act. And there's a lot of irony there because of what we know ends up happening to that character. And the fact that in that same scene, then you have not being at the beck and call and then immediately having to serve the baby is, is, is informing that. And this notion of how central that is in motivating that act and thinking about that in terms of just in general, like I think we're seeing a lot of now the generation, I mean, my own generation really like the millennials and then, and the zoomers who are coming after is the, um, there's less of that generation is having kids. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. One of them is simply uh, anxiety about climate change and not feeling comfortable having kids when there's that to, to the, it was worsening. But a lot of it is also like an economic condition, you know, in the same way when people talk about like, oh, millennials aren't, aren't uh, marrying at as young an age. It's like, maybe because weddings are expensive. <laughs> True. <laughs> having a kid is expensive like they're and and having to take that into consideration is necessary and we're and you kind of you get that here where these in the family they like they love that kid 
and they're very as you say like they'll you know they're not willing to put them in harm's way but there's a cost to that um and it's a cost that a lot of the more wealthy characters don't have to consider because it's yeah. not really a problem for them in a way that it is for the the lower classes um but it is interesting that it's it's done in a way that does have a humorous quality because there is a witty irony to it. Um, and why choose to do this in a more comical way? Not that it's like a, you know, it's not a shot in the dark. It's not a full on comedic set piece, yeah. but it is like it's a, it's a funny bit. And I'm not sure. I think one of the reasons might simply be it is ultimately the most effective way to communicate that just in terms of like screen time. Because you could have it where you could stress the irony in a more melodramatic way, you know, not being in anyone's beck and call. And then the baby cries and it's like, oh, we're at that. It's beck and call. But that feels sloppy and trite yeah. and bad. Um, and I also think there's this sort of recognition from an audience, any audience that, you know, has had to take care of children of realizing like, no, you do have a boss too. Um <laughs> So it, that I think maybe just communicates the idea more effectively. Uh, and in some ways it goes back to the film's structure where a lot of it is set around this framing narrative of uh, one character played by Tetsuya Nakaida um, meeting with these uh, powerful people and telling the story. And we're cutting back and forth between the stories he tells and then the, the present day story. And the film is like an exemplar. If you want to know how to write a framing story, watch this movie because it is yeah. so good at how the main story informs the flashbacks and then the flashbacks recontextualize and reinform the, the main story. And it goes back and forth over and over again. So, you know, having this scene here has a humorous quality in the moment, but it's also informed by this larger context that um, gives it other layers yeah, that's true. I think I think it's different because I think he the director is genuinely saying that um that this kind of you know being being uh tied to somebody is good. I really do think that. Like I think mm -hmm. that it's a contrast to the rest of the film. Um that yeah, they're at the beck and call of a baby, but it's a baby. You know, yeah, it's somebody yeah. that they love. It's it's uh, somebody they're protecting. It's their family. And I think it's that's not sinister in why. a way that the other power relationships in the movie right. are. Yeah. Yeah. And that holds true with his filmography. Like he had he had a humanist streak, which is comparable to a lot of his peers. But he was also like a pretty outspoken like leftist and socialist now his films are complex in dealing with that and he a lot of his films are about reconciling with those values and, and being critical of them but it is apparent in the works he made and he does view family and interpersonal connections as a source for joy and what makes you see it in the human condition trilogy like the main characters for all the hardship in that story that marriage is like a source of of light and life that motivates him and the action and is, is something that's worth, it's worth trying to live just to get back to that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that's really consistent with his, his films. Yeah. I get, this is probably the only one of his I've seen. Well, you just saw the human condition trilogy, not that long ago, right? Pretty back recently. in August. 
you know nice that was a it was a wonderful day <laughs> so yeah they're 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 fantastic and the funny thing is is like he makes those in 59 and 61 and it's like seemingly the greatest like achievement it it feels like the kind of films it's like that's the film you work your whole life to make and then he makes harakiri a year later and it's arguably even better (laughs) (laughs) um and the same year as this he also makes a film called the inheritance which is less remembered than either the other big films of this time but is also really really good uh it's about a and it's relevant to the themes it's about a sort of corporate um hotshot ceo who's on his deathbed and is laying out how to divide his his fortune his inheritance and it's about everyone in his inner circle basically jockeying for power to try and get as much out of him as they can before he goes um because he reveals like oh i have a kid that i've never been in contact with but i want to find out who they are meet them and see if they're worthy of my fortune and then you have all these other characters like how do we get in on this it's very good interesting Hmm. i'll have to keep that in mind yeah the first time i saw this movie i was so enraptured with like the story right and and how the story was like you mentioned how the framing framing story works and how it's drawn out um that i never really noticed this this theme of like the power gap or the the wealth gap um but this time around it was very apparent and it made it a richer watch i think Well, it's also interesting because in his filmography, even though it's consistent with his themes, it's somewhat um, distinct in that it's the most or it's the least like explicitly political or explicitly partisan. Like his other films are more. They talk about these issues more overtly and directly, like with that language, like one of his films, for example, is about like um, a landlord trying to force out tenants, say, Um, so he can develop the land and and sell it and using criminal elements to push people off the land. And there's a socialist character who's trying to advocate for the rights of the people in the building. Um, Black or uh, not black river. Sorry. That is black river. His film, the thick walled room is very much about reflecting on the legacy of Japan's war crimes in world war two and trying to come to grips with the degree to which the soldiers are responsible and the degree to which the generals are responsible and who's disproportionately punished for those crimes. So Harakiri, it's dealing with a lot of the same questions in terms of power and who benefits and who is insulated and, and who's exploited, but it's less explicit in the text. And that might just be a function of it being a period piece. Um, Whereas other films were, even if they're technically set in the past, it was like 20 years in the past, not hundreds of years um but it's more implicit within the the narrative and there and i think therefore like the first time you see it it's it's not as apparent it's not the most immediate thing that hits you in part because also you're you're trying to figure out the story because it is like how does this all connect where is this all going yeah it's a great movie well should we go to something even darker and more cynical we shall. Uh, the Dark Knight himself. We're talking <laughs> 1966's Batman. Um, which, I don't know what your take is on Adam West Batman. I think it's delightful. Um, I mean, yeah, I used to watch it back in the day. Um, because it, just as a campy joke, right? You'd be like, oh, let's watch this stupid Batman. And then <laughs> you, you can't help but being charmed by it. <laughs> Have you seen the movie? 
Yeah, it's been a while, but yes, I have. Yeah. So this comes after the famous bomb scene where Batman runs around with the giant comical bomb that yeah. he ends up uh, possibly one of the safely. greatest, one of the greatest superhero scenes of all time. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, every time he tries to throw it somewhere, there's someone there that he can't. There's like a group of nuns. The best is the shot where it's just like some ducks floating in the river, and he's like, you can't throw it there. And he has the great line: "Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb." <laughs> but um, the moment I'm choosing is afterwards when you know Robin is worried about Batman, but then he sees him, he learns he's okay. And the initial place he has the bomb or one of the places he's thinking of throwing it is in this bar and there's a bunch of patrons in there drinking and smoking and having, you know, playing cards, having a good time and he won't do it. So afterwards, when he disposes of the bomb, Robin says to him, you risked your life to save that riffraff in the bar with such, you know, <laughs> venomous disgust. And Batman responds, they may be drinkers, Robin, but they're still human and salvageable. <laughs> I had to do it. <laughs> um and I, I i love this just because i mean, dare they drink it's so goofy it's so funny the and i love like not only like because one of the things that's easy to parody about superheroes is the idea of like a staunch moral code and then being kind of squares there was actually a big audience for the 60s batman show like a queer audience who read it in a sort of subversive way who really aligned more with the villains they were the fun characters and they were the aspirational personalities and Batman and the cops are like these old fogies. And I like this line because it is like, and it is knowing like it's deliberately extreme of like, you know, the fact too, that it's like, it's just people in a bar <laughs> like, <laughs> and I have to be careful the way I word this. It's, I'm, it's not like it's people who were like strung up on heroin or something, not that they would deserve to die anymore, but you can understand from the perspective of like a, I don't know, staunch moralist being like, those lives aren't even worth saving, right? Um, but this is just like people in a bar. They're not doing anything <laughs> illegal. They're not doing, they're not hurting anybody except their own livers, I suppose. But, uh, you know, for it to still have such a melodramatic, like, they can still be saved is just funny. <laughs> it just makes me happy. Um, but there's something else to this line that I like, which is that in its own weird little way, I think this actually gets to the core of one of my favorite aspects of Batman as a character. Um, not in all iterations, but one that's recurring in a lot of them, which is this, like the no kill rule, right? Like as much as Batman, his efforts against crime, like he will not cross that line. Um, and I like this core concept of like also the fact that he will make it a point to save every life he can because, and I believe this is actually a line from Neil Gaiman's um, book on like what happened to the Cape Crusader where he, it's something akin to like uh, everyone is worth saving and this notion of that being so integral to the character that even though he's like on paper like he's the dark superhero and the edgy one he wears all black and he beats criminals up and he's very tortured is this notion of like what is motivating him as his core is the death of his parents and wanting to spare anyone that pain ever again. He wanting to save everyone. I like the line in 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 the universe of Batman the animated series in the Justice League cartoon where uh, Amanda Waller says, for all that fierce exterior, I've never met anyone who cares as deeply for his fellow man as Bruce Wayne. And I love that. And this derpy, goofy scene where he refuses to <laughs> blow up the riffraff in a bar in its own way perfectly gets to that. 
every life is worth saving, even the the riffraff in the bar. Yeah, and Robin doesn't have any issues with them not throwing it at the ducks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's not a problem. Uh, it it is interesting that you know the idea of saving people is something that's just has kind of gone away in, in superhero movies, mm-hmm. unless it's like a specific character that we already know. Yeah. Like just the general public and protecting the general public just kind of has been lost. Well, the general public don't exist in, in superhero movies anymore. Right. You know, and I so, think you're losing something crucial there. I agree. I mean, so many recent superhero climaxes, for example, are just set in like empty voids. Or like they're all every character is some variation of a superhero. Like I kind of roll my eyes in Avengers Endgame when like even Pepper Potts gets her own Iron Man suit. She fights with the team. And I'm like, I'm not trying to, I I, I hope I'm not sounding like a misogynist. She's like, they shouldn't, they should be the damsel. But there's something lost when every single character is some variation of an action figure. There's no normal people. I think you even see that in the way people talk about like Mary Jane and the Sam Raimi trilogy and say like, oh, she's so unlikable and like she's this and that and it's like she's just a damsel it's like yeah those films rely on the trope of her needing to be saved a lot arguably too much but also like she was a working actress <laughs> like yeah. you know she was a broadway star briefly admittedly but nonetheless like that's that takes talent to do that's no slouch but this 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 idea that like the characters in a superhero movie are only important if they can like punch the bad guy um and again, like to tie it back into not this Batman, but a Batman, one of the things that really resonated with me about the Batman, the Matt Reeves film, is how central to the ending it was about saving people. The whole point of Bruce's arc in that film is realizing it's not enough to be a symbol of vengeance. He needs to be a spark for hope. And he like the my favorite, maybe my favorite sort of image in the whole movie is when the one person is being that he saved is being like helicopter lifted out and they're just holding on to Batman as like the source of like comfort and uh stability and and him just being like, you know, it's okay essentially. And then the, you know that that house is integral saving people is and actually yeah. helping people and not just punching the bad guy harder than the bad guy punches you. Yeah, it is. It is an important aspect. Um, I think like the early Avengers movies still had that focus. Mm-hmm. Avengers but, one definitely does. Yeah. But eventually that just kind of went away when the universe just came became so like insular, I guess um, mm-hmm. it, that got lost there, too. Um, <laughs> the other thing I like about your moment, though, is that there's. Because this, of course, is based off of a 60s TV show. And there's something like very like family sitcom about, you know, how Batman has to always teach the morals to Robin. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I think there's that's an interesting, fun part to it as well. Absolutely. And also, again, how like sanitize the messages of like drinking is bad. Like it's literally like such baby shit. <laughs> like, it's so sanitized, um, which I absolutely think is yeah part of the charm and that that's to me too like is in some ways funnier that as much as the bomb scene in and of itself is great that dialogue exchange afterwards is maybe funnier (laughs) um and also in my my preparing for this I did stumble across it looks like there's 
I don't know what the genre of music is, but there is a song out there called You'd Risk Your Life to Save That Riff Raff in the Bar. <laughs> really? Which is pretty cool. Oh, man. Well, we have our outro music. <laughs> oh, true. Hadn't even thought about that. But maybe. <laughs> I mean, I might listen to the song and be like, ooh, never mind. Yeah, it might not work. And you Morricone, back in there, baby. <laughs> so. Yeah. So no bat, no shark repellent. That wasn't your moment. That's too big. You can't. That if was, I was going to do that, I'd have to rewatch the scene. But like there's other can canisters of other stuff. <laughs> that to me is the real thing of like you prepare. Like, and that's again, very Batman thing of like, that's what the nerds say. Like if he has a week to prep, he can prepare for any scenario. Clearly look at all the repellents he yep. has. There's no doubt about it. There is no sea creature that attacks him that he won't be ready for. I almost <laughs> went with another Robin line, which is when they're solving riddles and it's like what sits in a tree weighs seven pounds and is very dangerous. And Robin's like a sparrow with a machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that whole scene is amazing too. When they're like, they're figuring out all the villains that are involved. And Robin's like, wait a minute, the crime happened at sea, sea, sea for Catwoman," And that ends up being like a correct uh, instinct and intuition. Um, this is an amazing film. Yeah. It's uh it's funny because when you're younger, you don't really get the tongue in cheek aspect of it. You just think that it's actually yeah. is that dumb. You don't realize it's like, oh, wait, no, they made a comedy. <laughs> yeah. And it is They'd... funny. Yes. There's yeah, even some political satire in this one. So, yeah. With the bickering. Uh, I don't think they're called the UN, but it's essentially the UN. I have had an itching to watch this movie again, and I did try to get it from the library, but there was. I don't know, some issue with it, so it didn't go through, but I'll have to try again. Oh, my brother has a DVD. I also seem to recall playing a drinking game. I, I actually devised the drinking game for this movie. Many, You're many such riffraff, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was taking the wrong messages. Don't worry, from, you're uh, salvageable, though. Yeah, that's true. Batman would save me. It's comforting <laughs> to know, despite being a drunken mess, Batman would save me. Thank you. So what Batman. was the drinking game? <laughs> I don't remember, but I had like a list of like things for like every utterance of like X drink. I specifically remember one of them being like pointless masks because specifically when the villains do one of the schemes, they all wear like those little like Robin's masks, just the eye domino masks. But they're also still in their villain clothes. Like you're the Joker. I don't think wearing a little thing over your eyes is going to be like, oh, that could be anybody. <laughs> um so oh yeah good times yeah it's a fun film i think uh watch it with the right attitude to have a good time all the actors are a hoot um pure west mm -hmm. excellent all right well, there we go that was the 60s everybody mm -hmm. we've now done early mid and late we've covered it all covered it all yeah and what a better way to finish off than batman <laughs> the riffraff in the bar we bring up batman a lot on this show <laughs> we do well mostly you do you bring up batman a lot i mean when you're <laughs> right you're right i feel like i bring up bergman enough that it cancels each other out there you go i mean yeah, that's the thing if i hadn't done thunderball my other pick probably would have been persona so yeah that 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 checks. <laughs> Although it's hard to find like a little moment in Persona because everything is just like, what do I even make of this? Um, anywho. Awesome. Cool. Um, 
videos. You probably have no idea. It's two weeks away. But well, it's very unlikely that when this comes out, my new video is out. But I will say I've started editing the video together. The voiceovers recorded and the images have started to be put into place. So things will probably start moving relatively quickly. Sweet. It'll for sure be out before the Oscars. Here we go. Uh, excellent. Okay. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds and let us know what your favorite 60s movies are. Um, all right. Well, I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And I'm going to go drink some water. The rest of my voice. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good night. <laughs>